message from God's Word comes from 1 Samuel chapter 12. I believe in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we see the covenant plot of the Bible that we read about in Revelation. Israel has gathered. They told Samuel, if you remember, that they wanted a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And God says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. And I will give them a king. Saul was anointed king privately with Samuel. And then publicly in front of all Israel, he was chosen by Lot, if you remember, but they couldn't find him. He was hiding. God said, go look in the baggage. That's where he's hiding. They brought him out and they anointed him publicly. And then it all kind of seemed like it was back to normal. He went back to his house. And the next time we see him, he's plowing a field. He doesn't feel or seem like a king at this time. And yet God raises him up to defeat the Ammonites. And after he defeats the Ammonites in the power of the Spirit of God, Samuel says, let's renew the covenant and the kingship with God. And that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 12. I believe what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 12 is really an expanded form of what happened at the end of chapter 11. 11 kind of summarizes, the end of chapter 11 kind of summarizes what's happening in greater detail in chapter 12. So I'm going to read the entire chapter of chapter 12. Please remain seated, but hear God's holy word. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me. I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, that his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And now when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was king, 
And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and you and your king. And therefore stand still and see this great thing the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as, once again, sheep who are in need of a shepherd. We need your rod and your staff to comfort us to direct us and guide us. Strike a straight blow with this crooked stick this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So after reading this text, you might think, what does this have to do with the Bible's plot? It doesn't sound much like Revelation at all. It doesn't sound much like Genesis 3. Well, if you remember Genesis 3, the curse of the serpents from God to the serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, serpent, and her offspring. And you shall bruise his heel and he shall bruise your head. Where there was once friendship between the serpents and the people of God, now there's enmity between the serpent and the people of God. This is a great gift. But we see the serpent continually pulling at the people of God, striking their heels, causing them to doubt God's faithfulness again and again. And yet God always pursues his people. He always brings them back to himself. And this is the plot of the Bible. As we go through the text, I believe we'll see God's faithfulness to his covenant promises, Israel's unfaithfulness, God's salvation and the people's repentance. Verses 1 through 5, we see God's faithful covenant witness. God's faithfulness is displayed through his covenant witness, who is Samuel. 
The prophets and the judges were all supposed to be as faithful as Samuel. Of course, he wasn't perfect, but he's displayed here as a faithful witness of God and his covenant. And he calls them back into right relationship with God. That's what a covenant witness is to do. He raises up faithful prophets and judges to show the people what covenant faithfulness looks like. What is a covenant? At the time the Bible was written, a covenant was usually made between a greater king and a lesser king. It's a solemn vow between two parties that they are faithful to each other. There's rewards and punishments to establish enforcement of the covenant. There were promises and signs and documents to record and establish it. In the Bible, when God makes a covenant with man, he's always the initiator. He's always the one who enforces the terms of the covenant. He establishes the signs and the documents and provides the enforcement. And he's the one who guarantees that the terms of the covenant will be fulfilled in his people. Samuel calls Israel back to the covenant. They're renewing the covenant. After the great victory that Saul and the people of Israel had against the Ammonites. He calls them back. He says, let's renew the kingdom. Let's renew the covenant. There's always been a covenant between God and man. The Garden of Eden, all the elements of the covenant exist, although that word is not explicitly used. And after the fall, God responds to the covenant with grace. Remember, in his own sovereign initiative, he seeks out Adam and Eve, doesn't he? He seeks them out. And then he investigates what happened. What did you do? Who said that? Why did you do that? And then he promised he would punish the serpent. The woman and the man also. And he promises to put enmity between the man and the serpent. No longer would they be friends. The seed of the woman, the people of God, would no longer have friendship with the enemy. And rather... The enemy would pursue them, and God would preserve them. And this is the narrative of the Bible. God redeems his people. He makes them his own. And every time you read, I will be your God, and you will be my people, you need to think covenant. That's the covenant formula all through the scriptures. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. It's everywhere. So here in chapter 12, we see Samuel has been a tremendous covenant example. He's repeatedly called the people back from their wandering, from their disobedience. And he recounts here his faithfulness to God's covenant during his time as a judge. He says, I've been with you from my youth. Remember from the time of his conception, we've known about Samuel. And from the time he was born, we've known that Samuel was destined to serve in the temple or in the tabernacle. And his whole life, he was nothing came out of his mouth and fell to the ground. Every word of his was made to be effective. This whole time he served them, he was upright and honest and godly. And he says, now I'm old. I'm old. You wanted a king. Now you're going to get a king. It's almost like he's holding up to them what they're giving up. They're giving up God's priest and prophet whom he's raised up from his youth. And they're going to get their own king. 
And God had warned them, if you remember, and Samuel had warned them, if they got a king, he would take their property. He would take their sons and daughters, if you remember that. And he's saying, look, have I taken anything from you? Have I taken anything at all from you? Can you tell me? Have I taken an ox? Have I taken a bribe? Have I done anything unworthy? And they said no. And yet they broke covenant with God by seeking a king instead of the man God had raised up. Certainly God would use this sin for his own glory because we know that Jesus is our ultimate king. King David is the type of Christ who's the king beloved by God. And yet still at this time, they don't see that. They only see their own sin. That was the point of Samuel's testimony to show God's faithful witness He's blameless in their eyes. He had fulfilled the covenant. Indeed, through him, God had fulfilled his covenant promises to his people. He's righteous. And remember, at God's covenant, he's the one who initiates, he's the one who guarantees, and he's the one who pursues. So that's plot part one. God is faithful. God is faithful to his covenant promises. Let's look at part two of the plot. Israel is put on the stand, if you will. Samuel shows the people, like a good prophet does, all of their sin. He holds it up before them. He showed them God's faithfulness. And he's also going to show them their own sin and breaking covenant with their one and only, truly God. He references the covenant of Moses, the exodus out of Egypt, He shows great patience of God in in the midst of all their rebellion. He shows the salvation of God. When they cried out to God, it says in verses 10, 11, and 12, and God raised up Jeroboam or Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel, and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side. You rebelled against God and you cried out to God and he still came after you and saved you. More importantly, he reminds them that God brought them out of Egypt and redeemed them from slavery. This is a picture of our salvation, of course. He made them his own people. He established his covenant with them. He delivered them from their enemies again and again and again. Despite their rebellion, he continues to hear their prayers. The Exodus story is also our story. God's grace contrasted with our rebellion. Even after we are saved, we still struggle with sin and rebellion. God has aligned himself with us, though, against the serpent. He seeks us out. And this is most clearly seen in the work of Christ. He sent his son to save whom? John 16, John 17 say, I came to save all those whom you had given me. So Isaiah cries out, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So like Israel, we are most guilty before the Holy One of God. Like Israel, we sought out another king to rule instead of God. And we still have a heart that desires to find other kings, other idols to worship. 
And like Israel, God has sought us out for himself and made us his own people. And he calls us to trust in his promises. So we have part one of God's faithfulness, his faithful covenant call. We have part two of our unfaithfulness and the unfaithfulness of Israel. Now we see the great salvation of God. How he saves us and he changes us. Verse 13, we see that Samuel highlights the king that they have chosen for themselves and asked for. But then he tells him, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, it will be well. He has saved you. He's given you a king as you asked for. Now obey him and it will be well. There's a great misconception just as a side note in Christianity, I believe that grace means that obeying God's commands is somehow irrelevant. And we, of course, do not believe that. The commandments of God are a great benefit to us and they're also a great act of worship because they please our God. They please our Father. We are not antinomians, anti-law at all. But usually it kind of it wiggles its way into an evangelical church like this. Well, we're all under grace. We're not under law. Really, the law just says we should love Jesus. So all we have to do is love Jesus. And of course, Satan is slippery. There's a grain of truth there. But what people usually mean when they say you're not under law but grace is that I can do what I want. Don't bother me with details. Jesus is going to forgive me. They presume on the grace of God. Or when they say, well, all I have to do is love Jesus. Because love in our culture is very subjective. It's about our emotional feelings. Our duty to God becomes subjective as well. As long as you have a good thought about Jesus in your heart, well, it's, it's all okay. My daily life is unimportant because I love Jesus. These ideas are anti-Christian is what they are. Jesus spent considerable time countering these kinds of ideas and thoughts. He clearly said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. We're not saved by our law-keeping, of course. We're saved by grace. But as Luther said, it's a grace that's actually working. It's an evidence of our faith. It's an outcome of our salvation. And yet Christ calls us not to be satisfied with the wide gate, but to seek the narrow way. The way that's hard, the way of obedience. And here's the kind of the the interesting paradox is that when you take on Christ's burden, it's easy and it's light. You see, the commandments of God become easy to bear because we love our Savior. We desire to please Him. Something the Israelites have not yet understood they still are probably feeling, most of them, like it's a great weight. And yet we see the commandments of God as a great blessing because we want to please our Father so much. We're not saved by works, but we're saved by a faith 
That works, Luther said. Our service to God, our obedience to his commandments, our desire to live godly lives, all of this flows out of a heart of worship and gratitude for what God's done. Serving God, even for Adam and Eve, for Noah, for Moses, for Samuel, for the Israelites, for David, all the prophets, it's never about earning God's favor through the keeping of the law or the commandments, ever. Not from the beginning. It's never been like that. It's always been about the heart, always. Because he's holy and righteous and good and just, and he shed his grace on you, desiring in our inner man nothing more than to please the Father is our highest aim. It's always been about the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, read in verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Verse 16, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. We see this in Jeremiah. We see it all over. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 3, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and so not among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. God has always, from the very beginning, wanted heart worship. Worship from the heart. It's never been one of these things that, well, what today they would say is legalism. It's never been like that, that you, you work your way into God's favor, ever. That's never been the case. And even today, that term is very misunderstood, isn't it? People will tell me, well, I don't know about, you know, the fourth commandment, just resting on the Lord's day. That's very legalistic. Actually, it's just obeying God's commandment. Would you say that not murdering? I don't know about this whole not murdering thing. That seems very legalistic. I don't know about this not coveting thing. It seems very legalistic. Obeying God's commands is never legalism. Obeying God's commands out of a heart of gratitude and love for our Father is always right and good. So there's never a sense in the covenant of God where grace just overwhelms everything and God's commands aren't really important. It just doesn't exist that way. Even in the covenant of grace, we're saved by grace, but we're called to obedience. And this isn't uh, a grace that produces anything but a humble reliance on God. God's grace is all God's initiative, and maintaining his covenant is all his initiative as well. Isaiah 36, 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. You see, God saves us not because we're somehow good. None of us are. He saves us only for his holy name's sake. What does he say he'll do in verse 25? I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Why? And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see what God requires, he actually does. He produces that desire in us. Of course, we're not perfect. We're righteous because of Christ. But he requires a heart that seeks after God. And he gives us a heart that seeks after God. The very thing he requires is the thing that he provides. He will not only create the terms of the covenant, he will ensure that the covenant terms are met by his own people. We're sometimes tempted to be just as faithless as Israel. We forget all that God's done for us. We forget all the times he's rescued us, preserved us, or sustained us. In the next trial of life, we might begin to grumble and start looking for some other solution, some other king. We're faithless at times. Some people are struggling with sin or wondering if they'll ever be able to live a godly life. You might wonder, I don't even have a desire to live godly life right now. I I don't know if I'll ever be able to change my sin. It feels like it clings so closely. All of my bad habits, my eating, my pleasure, my pornography, my drinking, my addiction to sports or gossip or bitterness or coveting or anger, lust, desire for riches, anxiety, worldliness, pride or conceit, all of the things that Seek to consume your life. You just feel like you're too entrenched. Nothing will ever change. I've tried. I've tried again. What do I do? What you do is remember that God is the one who changes the heart. Only he can change the leopard spots. Only he can bring life to the dead bones of your soul. Cry out to God. If you need Jesus, cry out to God. If you're struggling with sin, cry out to God. Ask him to sanctify you, to set you apart. That's what Israel needed to do. Samuel calls them to cry out to God, to remember God's salvation, and to cry out to him and serve him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Finally, We see the people's repentance. This is part four. It's our repentance. Stand still and see this thing that I will do, Samuel said. And what is this about rain and the wheat harvest? This is the dry season. Samuel performs a miracle. Someone said it would be like Samuel bringing snow to Miami in the middle of July. They knew that God was talking when he sent thunder and rain and it produced repentance. When people are faced with God, it brings them to repentance. If God is going to save you, he will bring you to a place of repentance. And you will observe the power and majesty and holy and greatness, holiness and greatness of our covenant king. And the people cried out to Samuel, pray for us. He brought them to repentance and he asked for prayer. They all asked for prayer. I think it's helpful to remember how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance. They say it's a saving grace. 
In other words, it's not something you've done. God gives you a heart of repentance when he regenerates your soul. It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, in other words, you understand the gravity of your sin against God, and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. You understand not only your your sin against a holy God, but what God did to bring you to himself. He showed mercy on you through Christ and his sacrifice. When you get all that, you with grief and hatred of your sin, turn from it unto God. Don't you love that? With a full purpose of and an endeavor after a new obedience. That's repentance. You turn from your sin and you turn to your Savior and you fix your eyes there and you run. This is what the Israelites needed to do and that's what we should do as well. We should repent. Repentance is not just about you accepting Christ as your Savior. The gospel is for your whole life all the time. We are a people of repentance. We repent often. And Samuel shows them great grace in the conclusion of the chapter. He says, don't be afraid for all this evil you have done. That's our message as well. Don't be afraid. You've done evil. This is true. But don't be afraid. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. If you serve God, don't despair when you sin, when you fail. He chose us from the creation of the world and he loves us. And for his name's sake, he will preserve us. We hate our sin. We run to our Savior. And the Lord has called out of all the earth a people for himself. This indeed is the plot of the Bible. If you know that you hate your sin then even the faintest spark of faith is a gift from God, and he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. Do not despair. You're a child of the king, so take heart and look to Jesus. We come now to a time of communion. Let us pray. Our good and great God in heaven, we thank you that you have indeed called us out of the world and to yourself. You've shined your light upon us. You've given your grace to us. Although the serpent would endeavor to swallow us up, you preserve your remnant and you call us to holy living for your name's sake. We thank you that you've shed your grace upon our hearts and you've given us a heart to love your law. We pray that your commandments would become sweet to us because we know they please you. And despite all that we do and all of our failures, we know that it's only because of Christ that we can come to you remembering what Christ has done, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection brings us to this table. We pray in Jesus' name that we would receive all that you have for us, that we'd be spiritually encouraged tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.